Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's return to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're in chapter 9. Text is verses 1 through 10 of Luke chapter 9. The title of the message is, Who is this? And when we read the text, you'll know where I got the title from. This is a transitional moment in the public ministry of Jesus. From the beginning, he knew, of course, that his time would be brief. We believe that Jesus' uh, public ministry only lasted about three and a half years. And he entrusted the gospel with an inner circle of disciples known here as the Twelve to continue his ministry. Here in chapter 9, he commissions the Twelve disciples. They go out as disciples, but when they come back, they're referred to as apostles, those who were sent out with authority. So let's read about that commissioning. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the Twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. May the Lord bless the hearing and reading of his word. Now this morning I want us to see four things, and each of the points starts with the letter D. The first thing we see in the first two verses is a a deputation. Now the word deputation simply means the act of appointing a person or a group of people to represent or act for another. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's multiplying his ministry. Now he had gained a great deal of fame by this point. Remember everywhere he went, the snowball effect, he would pick up more disciples and to the point where he could barely go out in public any longer. Now he's sending these 12 men who had spent many weeks with him and he's empowering them and giving them the authority to do the same things that he had done. That is to preach the kingdom and to perform miracles. Again, there were thousands of people who considered themselves by this time to be followers of Jesus or disciples. That's what the word disciple means, follower or learner. Of course, Jesus knew that not nearly all of those thousands of people were genuinely committed to Christ, as we'll see later on in our Luke study. In fact, in Luke 6, we are introduced to the 12 men that became the inner circle, those that Jesus spent the lion's share of his time with. They are known here as the 12. Do you remember their names? Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, James the Younger, Judas, Thaddeus, Matthew, Philip, Simon the Zealot, and Thomas. I had a cheat sheet in front of me. (laughs) I was with our children Friday night over at First Baptist Shulis, and they had their annual state Bible drill. I'm amazed 
at how much our children have memorized from the Word of God. And there was a time where I knew all 12 about that fast, but I needed some help this morning. First thing that Jesus did in Luke 6 was He called these men. That is, He called them out from their secular vocations and told them that He was going to make them fishers of men. And He gave them power here in Luke chapter 9. I think that's a great biblical principle that those the Lord calls He equips. That's not just for the apostles. All Christians are in a battle. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that God has given us everything we need to fight that battle. He calls it the the whole armor that we're to take on, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. But that's a biblical principle. Those the Lord calls, He equips and provides for. But you'll note that He gives them authority. Now authority is, is something that is a powerful thing. And in the wrong hands, it can be dangerous. But you'll note that this authority is delegated authority. He gave them power, but it is delegated power. Even after Jesus ascended to heaven, as the apostles continued on his ministry, right away in Acts chapter 3, we find an incident in which Peter and John were going down to the temple to pray. And they came across a man who was crippled. And the man held out his hand and wanted money. He was a beggar. And Peter and John being preachers said, silver and gold have we none. But such as we have, we give unto you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They did not heal anyone in their own power. This was not something that emanated from within them inherently. This was a gift given to them by Jesus. Now we need to be very careful here. I said that the equipping for ministry is universal to all Christians. But this power to heal and to cast out demons was apparently only given to the apostles and, and to them only for a period of time. So we would say that this power is descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, Luke is just describing what the Lord did through them. He's not saying that all Christians have the power to heal. In fact, there's nowhere in Scripture that I can find that it says all Christians have the power to heal. Now, God can heal whomever He chooses. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But there are no longer apostles in, in the world. This was a temporary gifting. And he sent them primarily, though, to proclaim, he says, to preach. To preach simply is to proclaim the truth. It's really an announcement. And that really is what preachers do when they do it right. They're announcing what Jesus has done. And so the question is, when he says, go and preach, go proclaim, go announce, what are they to proclaim? Well, I think it's interesting here in these 10 verses that John the Baptist's name comes up again. It's been a while since we have heard from John the Baptist. Of course, he was imprisoned by this same Herod that's mentioned here. And in a, in a drunken party, he made a promise that he had to keep, and that was John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so John by this point is dead. But remember, John is referred to as the forerunner of Jesus, one who goes before a king and announces to the constituency that the king is on the way, you better get ready. And that's how John preached out there in the wilderness. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's nigh, it's close. And then after John the Baptist goes off the scene, Jesus entrusts this announcement, as it were, to the twelve. And what were they to proclaim? Well, a similar message, repent and believe. But rather than the king is coming, the king is here. He is among us. And now that Jesus has been crucified and risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven, we also are entrusted with some good news to announce, and that is the King is coming again. But it's the same message, repent and believe. 
And so this is the deputation. And in a real sense, all of us have a deputation. We are called ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. That is, we, because he's not here physically, represent Christ on earth. And we proclaim the good news message that the king is coming again. Now, not only do we see the deputation, we see the diligence of the apostles. Look at verse 3 here in chapter 9. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So when he said don't take two coats or robes and he says don't take a money purse, that would have been familiar instruction to them because it was the tradition among many of the traveling teachers and rabbis not to carry a purse or a staff or a weapon. And the reason was they did not want to give the appearance, and the Bible says to avoid even the appearance of evil, that they were in it for ulterior motives, specifically for money. So if you show up to town in lots of nice clothes and a money purse, people might say, well, we know why he's here. Watch your wallet. In fact, some of them would carry a money purse and put it out in front of them. And the, the implication was we're doing this for money. And, 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 but also they were showing the urgency of the message that we're not here to stay. We're only passing through. So you better listen to what we have to say. And I think that's primarily the emphasis here. And he says, Go to somewhere and and when someone receives you and takes you in, stay there until it's time to leave that village. But if they don't receive you, take your sandals and knock the dust off. Now that sounds kind of mean-spirited. And we know Jesus wasn't mean-spirited. But this was a tradition among Jewish people, and they would have known this, that when you travel into Gentile territory, before you enter back into the Holy Land, you knock that Gentile soil off of your shoes so as not to defile uh, the, the Holy Land. Well, he was saying the message you're taking is a holy message. It's sacred. It's set aside by God. And if people reject that, go on to the, the next place. Now, again, and, and I emphasize this strongly, this is not to be taken as prescriptive for us today. That is, we have a, a mission team out in Africa today. And when we took them to the airport, we didn't say, now don't take any money with you. And only take the clothes on your back. No, we try to prepare them and get them ready to go. And we take up an offering to help send them. Now, what changed? Well, look at Luke chapter 22. Turn over quickly, just a few pages, to Luke chapter 22. And here we find Jesus shortly before his arrest. And he's getting these men ready for the time when he's no longer with them. Luke 22 35, Jesus is speaking, and he said to them, I'll wait for you to get there. All right, we're there? Luke twenty two thirty five. 35, and he said to them, this is to the 12, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, where was that? Well, that was back in chapter 9, we're just reading today. Did you lack anything? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now... Whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Now what has changed from chapter 9 to chapter 22? Well, I take it that when he first sent them out to the villages of Judea, 
It would have been on their home turf. It would among pe people that they ostensibly knew, spoke the same language, had some common ancestry and the Old Testament in common with. And so they would be predisposed to hear what they had to say and to take them in. Now things have changed. They're no longer saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They'll soon be saying, crucify him. And because of their association with Jesus, people have turned on them. And more than that, he's sending them out into the pagan world, to the Gentile world. And they're going to have to travel on long journeys. And so they have to make preparations for that. Now, now keep that in mind as we go along. But you see primarily here in verse 6, the obedience of the apostles. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, there are times in the gospels that are not very flattering to the twelve, right? Sometimes Jesus says, you're going to deny me, and they do. Sometimes he gives them instruction, and they sort of obey. And sometimes they out and out disobey. But here in verse 6 of chapter 9, they do exactly right. He says, go and preach and heal. And the Bible says they went and they preached and they healed. And they did it with urgency and sincerity and great diligence. But there was one in the land who was not very impressed, and that was Herod. And he was distressed by the reports he was getting. Look at verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch. Now you need to know your history here. Herod the Tetrarch. Tetra means four. And Herod the Tetrarch's father was Herod the Great. And he was a puppet governor of the Romans in a, in a region called Idumea. And he was the Herod the Great, you remember, that issued the decree that all the male children two years and younger in Bethlehem were to be murdered around the same time that Jesus was born because he feared Jesus. Well, he's died and passed off the scene and his kingdom was divided into quarters. And four of his sons each got a quarter. And Herod Antipas has this region of Judea and that's why he's called Herod the Tetrarch. And so Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening. That is not only Jesus healing and preaching, but now the ministry is compounded by 12. And he was greatly perplexed. He was not pleased at all that people were being healed. In fact, he was confused because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Now remember, who killed John the Baptist? Well, it was Herod. And he no doubt had a guilty conscience and he thought he had done away with John. In fact, in Matthew chapter 14, we see sort of a paranoid incident with him where he says, this has to be John the Baptist risen from the dead. And then he rehearsed some of the other popular opinions that were out there. Do you remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah and some Elisha and some say this or that. And Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaking for the 12 says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Herod the Tetrarch is repeating some of those populist notions of who Jesus is, and he's trying to convince himself that it's not John the Baptist. And, and yet the scripture says he was trying to see him, that is, he wanted a personal audience with Jesus. So there's a principle here be careful what you wish for, <laughs> because he did, in fact, ultimately have a meeting with Jesus, but it was not on his own terms. Remember that on the night of Jesus' arrest, he was brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate could find no grounds for charging or keeping Jesus. He viewed it as an internal matter of the Jews. And so he sends him over to Herod, Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, to try him. And Herod was giddy when he saw Jesus, even though it was the middle of the night. Listen to Luke 23, 8. 
And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season. That is, for years, apparently. He'd been hearing about Jesus, but had never met him, and he was glad to see him because he had heard many things of him. Now listen to this. And he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Herod Antipas' motivation for wanting to see Jesus was the same as his father, Herod the Great. It was a self-interest. It was not an interest of conviction of sin. It was an interest of curiosity. He had heard about all these great things Jesus had done, and he wanted to be entertained by him. Well, Jesus did not come to entertain anybody, particularly a wicked king. And so listen to this. Then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him, what? Nothing. Jesus wouldn't even speak to Herod the Great. He wasn't going to gratify his desire for entertainment. Well, third, fourthly and finally, we come to a debriefing. Look at verse 10. It kind of ties this first part of Luke 9 together. He sent them out. He's given them delegated power and authority. And when the disciples returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Now you'll notice that Luke calls them in verse 10 apostles. Up until this point he'd call them disciples, which was the more generic term for those who were followers or learners. Now they have the special designation of apostles here in verse 10. And it says that they gave reports to Jesus. Now just taking a side here, I am convinced more and more we need to do more of this in our church. One of the things that's happened as our church has grown numerically is we've had to add services and we're now up to three on Sunday mornings and there's a very tight window of time. And uh, the reason I talk so fast sometimes, I'm trying to get a lot of information out there in a short amount of time. And, and sometimes we don't take our time and be reminded of what God is doing among us. We need to hear testimonies. And one of the things I love about our new evangelism emphasis is it's emphasis on testimony of what Christ is doing through His church. And here's an example of that from the Scriptures. These men came back and I'm sure Jesus said, how'd it go? By the way, when Jesus asked a question, it's not for information, right? He knew how it went. He sent them out and He's omniscient. He knew what went on. But they needed to hear from one another. And it isn't it interesting when you say out loud what God has done for you, how it encourages your own spirit. And so they're giving testimony for their benefit, not for His. But then there was a time of, of reflection and recovery. Look what He did after He heard from them. Taking them with Him, He withdrew by Himself to a city called Bethsaida. Now, up until this time, when Jesus got away for meditation and retreat, He went by Himself. He got away from the crowds. But now, He takes them with Him. There's a special bond and intimacy that has formed through shared ministry. Now, when I was uh, younger and dumber, now you, you know I used to be younger, but you didn't know I could get any dumber. I used to be dumber, believe it or not. And when I was younger and dumber in ministry, I used to say this a lot. When people would come to me and say, Pastor, you're working too hard, you're going to burn out. I'd say, well, I'd rather burn out than rust out. I heard older guys say that, and I thought that was pretty cute. <laughs> now that I'm 46, I realize that's dumb. We don't want to burn out. We want to serve the Lord until He calls us home. And we need times of rest 
We need times of retreat and reflection and, and remembrance and meditation upon what the Lord has done for us. We need to recuperate and recover. That's when, why we send missionaries overseas. Every few years we bring them home, don't we? We give them times of, of rest and recovery, and we all need that, and Jesus' apostles need that. Jesus modeled that for us, and if Jesus needed to do that, how much more so those of us who serve in His strength? Now, this seems like just sort of a historical narrative with, with a lot of, not a lot of application, but I think there's, there's plenty of application to the church today. And, and I'm going to point out at least four. Number one, remember what I said earlier, that we are to take this as descriptive and not prescriptive. And what I, what I mean by that is there's a lot of confusion today over this matter of apostolic succession. Of course, the Catholic Church has taught forever that there's an unbroken succession from Simon Peter to the popes, and we reject that out of hand as Protestants. But today, and within the last 10 years, there has been a resurgence, particularly in the charismatic movement, of something that, that we call the New Apostolic Reformation. Maybe you've heard of it. And there's a group of men who are claiming that they are now to be considered apostles in the last days. And they are claiming for themselves the same power and authority that Jesus gave to Peter and Andrew, James, and John. And they are claiming that they have the right to, to proclaim new revelation. That is, outside of the Word of God. You may think, well, that's going on overseas or somewhere. No, that's going on in Keller, Texas. Within a shadow of this church, that is going on today. And you need to be equipped to know that's not the truth. Nowhere in the scripture does it indicate that there was a continuation of the apostolic um, tradition. In fact, Jesus teaches us, and Paul teaches us through Jesus, that the church was built with Christ as the corner, right? Peter says that. And the teaching of the apostles as our foundation, and we build upon that. And I take that to mean Jesus entrusted the apostles with his teaching, and he gave them miracle power to verify that what he was teaching was true, just as Jesus' miracles verified that he was the Son of God. And then we take those teachings, which we have today, by the way, in the closed canon of Scripture, and we teach them to every subsequent generation. But nowhere in Scripture does it say this healing power has been given to uh, people today. Now, secondly, we have, though, primarily the same task as the apostle has, and that is proclamation. You'll notice when he says what he gave them instructions to do, first was proclamation and then the healing. And I take that to mean that the proclamation is more important than, than the healing. They proclaimed that the king is here. We proclaim today that the king has come and he's coming again, but it's the same message, repent and believe. Now, as it relates to the financing of ministry, Notice that he told them when he sent them out the first time, verse 3, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag. That is a purse. Don't take money with you. But then later on, over in the 22nd chapter, verse 8 and 9, he says, now you are to take money with you, and now you are to make provision for your journey. And I take that to be the model that continues to today. So how does God finance his work in the world today. Well, I believe the Bible teaches it's through his people, it's through the church. Now let's look at Acts chapter 4. Remember 
this same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And really the book of Acts is a part two of Luke. And it's the history of the first century church. And remember after Jesus has ascended into heaven, He gives instruction to His disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came in power. They preached, 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. We call that the birthday of the church. And they continued to meet together. Now verse 32, chapter 4, Acts. And the congregation, that is the church, the believers, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And so you no longer see the apostles going out to lost people and asking for a place to stay. Now the pattern is that God's people provide the means by which the ministry is done. And I believe that is the pattern today. And I say that because in just a little bit we're going to announce our new budget year which starts on July 1st. And for the last several weeks our budget and finance committee has been working together under this biblical instruction that it's not the job of the lost and dying world to finance the work of the church. It is our job. And so we call upon you now to be prayerful as we present the new ministry plan to you about what your part is going to be in that. But it's not only just each individual local church working in isolation. The Bible also says that there are times when it is appropriate for multiple churches to cooperate together for a task. One of the places we see that is in 1 Corinthians 16. Let's turn over and keep just turning to the right in your Bible, and you'll come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we find the Apostle Paul is writing to that church, and apparently he's given them instructions that he's taking up an offering that's going to be for the benefit of the believers in Jerusalem. And it's not only the church at Corinth, but there's churches throughout the region that he's ministered to in his past journeys that he's taking up this offering in. Look at 1 Corinthians 16.1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. The saints are simply believers. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And then he goes on about going to Macedonia and their generosity. So, there's three things about giving and the distribution of gifts in the church that I want to say briefly before we close. The first is this. You'll notice that it was strategic. It was not haphazard. Paul said there's a need to take up this offering for the saints. And he made the need known. And then there was intentionality of how we're going to distribute this. He says, here's how you do it. Okay, on the first day of the week you take up the collection. When people come together ostensibly, I take it to worship. And then when it's all been collected, when I come, you'll just designate someone to go with me or go by themselves to Jerusalem. And so that's really the main thing you see. There's accountability with giving to the Lord's work. 
where churches and individuals get in trouble, where there's a lack of accountability, where everybody just says, well, we're Christians, let's just put so-and-so in charge and, and not have any accountability. That's not how they did it in those days. Even the Apostle Paul, who was an apostle, by the way, needed accountability, and he wanted accountability. He always traveled with a partner, didn't he? And he wanted the church to know, I take it, that every penny that they gave to this offering was going to what it was supposed to be going to. And I hope you know that we have accountability here in our church. We have a, a committee, a large committee, that meets every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, and it's an open meeting to any member of the church. Every expenditure of the church is approved by every member of the committee. We do that not because we don't trust the staff or, or not because we don't trust our, our administrators in the office. We do that because it's the biblical model. And once a year we have an external audit and that audit came back very recently absolutely pristine and clear because we want every member to know as Paul did that this money is going to where it's intended to go. But you see that. Primarily it is the local church who through the gracious Generous gifts of its members finances the ministry of the church, including the benevolence ministry. And then occasionally churches join together so that they could do more together than they could ever do separately. And that has been the philosophy of our denomination since 1945. The Southern Baptist Convention got together and they said, look, we want to send missionaries all over the world. We want to train pastors and missionaries through our seminaries. We want to plant churches here in North America. How can we pool our money, and by the way, there's 45,000 of those churches now in North America. How can we pool our money to do more together than we could separately? How could we come up with a program of cooperation? And do you know what they called that program they came up with? The cooperative program. I've often said what we lack in creativity, we make up for in diligence. We're not real creative when it comes to naming things, but it, it says what it does. Each church designates a sum of money or a percentage of their gross receipts to be taken together as an offering to be distributed primarily to support the 5,000 international missionaries and the 5,000 church planters here in North America and to train our future pastors and missionaries and church leaders in one of our six Southern Baptist seminaries. And our church participates in that. And what you're going to notice in a few moments, I hope, when we make the announcement is that this coming fiscal year, 2018-2019, we're calling to giving more to the cooperation, cooperative program than we ever have in the history of our church. Why? Because we believe in it, primarily. But two, because of what we announced a few weeks ago at Easter. We are now debt-free. And one of the reasons we were so keen to become debt free and why we were so aggressive in paying off of our debt, even though it was a low percentage, is that we believed that we could give more away and do more for God's kingdom through missions if we were not saddled with that debt. And now we get to see that come about here in the next year. Amen? Well, we do that again, not because it's a philosophy the preacher came up with, but because we find these principles here in Luke chapter 9 and in other places in Scripture. Now let's pray and ask the Lord to give us the ability not only to meet our obligations, but to give above and beyond for His glory in the year ahead. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Father, always in everything we do, every plan we make, and every 
mission statement we have, may it be bathed in Scripture. May it be inundated, Father, with the Word of God, because we want to do your work your way. And the primary way that you have revealed your will is through your Word. And so, Father, we've seen today uh, the, the means by which not only you call people out for your ministry, you also equip them. And today, Father, you provide for our needs primarily through the generosity of other believers. And so, Father, we pray we would be indeed a generous church who gives with joy wherever there's a need. So, Father, we thank you for every individual in our church who puts you first and foremost in their finances in their life. And then, Lord, we thank you for a congregation who historically has done that. Lord, may that always be the case here. May we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all these needs that we have, you know about and you will meet. And so, Father, we trust you to meet the needs of our new budget coming up in July. We thank you for meeting our needs this year and in the years gone by. And so, Father, help us to do our work with joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.